All right, good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. Today we're going to look at Jude 7 and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is so much in this verse. You could really park here for a while, but for the sake of uh, continuing to move on, we're going to try to do that. We're continuing, you know, to just work through this verse by verse. This is a really important book. It's a warning to the church about apostasy about spiritual defection, defection from the truth. And and I think we see that on a regular basis. People just, for various reasons, because of persecution or because of things not going their way, whatever, people are abandoning the faith. Now, the question comes up, are these apostates that Jude talks about, are these believers or unbelievers? Well, we looked at that several weeks ago and we saw there's both, I think. I think, you know, Jude gives evidence that some of these are believers and some of these are non-believers. Look at verse 4. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Yeshua the Christ. So these certain persons have crept in. We're, we're not really sure who they are. They could have been itinerant preachers that traveled from place to place and they got there and then they just kind of worked their way in. They could have been elders from that place who just lost it and got, you know, that's what basically what Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. You know, from among you, these men are going to arise. Well, it says they crept in on notice. This is a single Greek word. It's peres duno. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's one of those words that doesn't appear anywhere else. It means to settle in alongside quietly without drawing attention. So these people have just kind of snuck into the group there, and they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. This is a selgea which originally refers to an excess or a lack of restraint. It was used almost exclusively for lewd sexual immorality. So these men have stuck, snuck in and they're just perverting what these people understand and what they believe about morality. Now, having said that the Tanakh teaches that apostates will be judged, he says they were long ago marked out for this. That's what he's talking about. In the Tanakh, the Tanakh talked about the judgment on people who uh, who go this route. Verse 4 is actually an introduction verse on apostasy. And then the next three verses give us illustrations of three different aspects. You know, Jude lives the little triads. So he's given us three illustrations of Yahweh's judgment. First of all, he talks about Israel. He says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, that's Israel, so Israel's his first illustration. Israel, you know, went through the Exodus. They saw, they heard the revelation of God at Sinai. They received his care throughout the wilderness. And yet most of them never entered the promised land because of sin. They turned away with all they'd seen. The apostasy of Israel and its consequences are set forth in Jude to encourage his readers to earnestly contend for the faith which once for all delivered to the saints. Jude gives a second example of angels. He said, the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Here, I think Jude is referring to Genesis 6 and the judgment on the angels that sinned. These angels, they're spirit beings. They left heaven. They came to earth. They cohabitated with women and produced a hybrid offspring of human deity. These were destroyed in the flood. Yahweh judged those angels. He locked them up until AD 70 where they were totally destroyed. 
Now, when you think about the fall of Israel and the great privilege they fell from, it seems amazing, but when you think about the angels sitting around the throne, fellowshipping with God, serving Him and His children, and they fall from that, that's an incredible fall. In verse 5, we had the apostasy among believers in the Exodus generation. In verse 6, we have apostasy among angels in Noah's generation. Now in verse 7, we see apostasy among the Gentiles in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, this verse starts out with hosts in the Greek, just as. And it, it denotes a close comparison with the verse preceding in verse 6. So he's saying, like the angels before them, they gave themselves over to immorality. Like the angels before them, they too went after strange flesh. We'll talk about this more as we progress in the verse. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Now this refers to a total of five cities located in once was one of the most beautiful spots in the world, the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley at that period of time was very extensive. It had the five cities involved Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, uh, Zebonim, and Zor. Zor didn't get destroyed. The other ones did. Now the Bible tells us about Sodom and Gomorrah before they were destroyed back in Genesis 13. So let's go back to Genesis 13, get a little idea what's going on here before we see its destruction. 13, 7 through 10 says, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. To the right, I'll go to the left. That's incredible, isn't it? Here's Abram saying, Lot, you just you take whatever you want. I'll take the other, you know. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered. I want you to see this. He's seeing this well watered place in the Jordan Valley. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, like the Garden of Eden. So Jordan was well watered. It was like the Garden of Yahweh. This is Eden he's talking about. Like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So we have this Edenic conditions here in the Jordan Valley, just a rich Fertile place with plenty of water. The people in cities once enjoyed a tremendous blessing of Yahweh living in this beautiful place. The land was well nourished. It was full of water. Then, because of their sin, it becomes a desolation. Fire and brimstone are poured out upon it. And the land becomes good for nothing. It becomes a parched wilderness. This is a picture of Sodom today. There's nothing there. It's just barren. There's nothing green growing. It's just desolate. Now, the biblical account of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is in Genesis 18 and 19. But verse 13, 11, it says, So Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. So you, you come to Je Genesis chapter 18, and it records the Lord having a conversation with these two angels. They come and they talk to Abram. It says, and Yahweh said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly great. Then verses 22 to 33 records Abraham pleading with the Lord for mercy for Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, how about if there's 50? How about if there's 45? How about if there's 40, 30, 20? You know, 10! You know, he just keeps going. You know, if you find anybody, you know. 
And the Lord said, if I find ten righteous, I won't destroy the city. What's that tell you? And not a lot of righteous people in this thing. All right, Genesis chapter 19 records the two angels who appear as men visiting Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Now, this is an Eastern custom, just showing respect. You know, I don't really know if he understood that these were angels or not. I somehow think he did, and we'll talk about that in a second, but, you know, this is, they, they say this is just a regular custom anyway. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. So, you know, they don't want to come in. Again, this is just Eastern hospitality, biting them into your house. We don't normally do this. Go out and you're sitting out at the park and you meet somebody. Hey, come and stay with me. You know, no, most people will be afraid to do anything like that. But in this culture, they just, you know, hospitality is a huge deal. All right? Above many, many other things. So he invites them in. They don't want to do it. Verse 3 says, Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. All right, so Lot, he urges them to come into his house, and I think this shows that he anticipates the threat that might be coming here. Notice it says here that they ate. So here we got two angels, and they're eating. You know, people say, well, how do they do that? I don't know. But they, they take on the appearance of men. They eat. They obviously can have sex, according to Genesis 6. So, this is what's going on here, alright? Verse 4, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surround the house, the young and the old, all the people from every quarter. Alright, now, the word men here is ish, which means man. Alright, these are men, and they like the men that came in. Alright, just hold on to that, alright? All the people from every quarter. Now, this doesn't mean that every single person was there. There might have been one or two righteous, but it means it's showing the depth of the depravity of the city. Just almost the whole place. All the men are out there for this event. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out, that we may have relations with them. The word relations is from the Hebrew yada, and it means it's talking about sexual intercourse here. All right, the King James says that we may know them. doesn't mean, oh, we would like to introduce ourselves. Hi, we're the you know, greeting committee. No, that, they weren't a greeting committee. They're, they're looking to have uh, sexual intercourse with these men. Uh, this is evident, I think, when you get to verse 8, where Lot offers his virgin daughters in place of these guests. All right, so it's talking here, I think, clearly about homosexual relations. These are men. They want to have sex with the angels who are men. All right, it goes on. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. We read this, dads, we read this, and it sounds absolutely crazy. I mean, oh, you know, I'm thinking over my dead body, okay? And how about the daughters reading this? Oh, thanks a lot, dad. Appreciate you volunteering our services. You know, I mean, it's just crazy for us to even comprehend something like this. He goes on to say, only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, to help us understand exactly what's going on here, because we don't know the culture. 
this, this just sounds crazy. Let me read to you a section from the Faith Life Study Bible. It says, hospitality towards strangers was considered a moral imperative in biblical times. This honor code meant that he could not turn the strangers over to the men of Sodom. In a patriarchal culture, daughters would have been viewed in lesser terms than Lot's male guests. Lot knew that offering his daughters was wrong, but he considered it a lesser evil. That shows you the place of hospitality. He knew that, you know, this is not a good thing to do, but, well, i got to protect the men at all costs. So it's not like he thinks this is a great idea. He's just trying to protect these men. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. That's the angels. They reach out and they grab him. With them, and they shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. I think these guys could have slept outside in the court by themselves. I think they can take care of themselves. I mean, they strike them with blindness. Again, these are two angels. You know, one people, a lot of people argue, well, the angels are just messengers. Well, if these are human messengers. They got some kind of supernatural power that they blind the whole group of people. But to me, the amazing part of this story, it says they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. I'm like, okay, guys, it's time to go home. I can't see anything. This, we don't want to mess with these guys. No, they're trying to find the door in their blindness. How strong is their lust? How strong is this depravity that even after they're blinded, they keep fighting to try to find the door? Well, the angel then tells Lot, he says, we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before Yahweh that Yahweh has sent us to destroy it. So God's intention is to utterly destroy Sodom. Then Yahweh rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. All right, total destruction. I mean, raining down brimstone, raining down fire to just totally burn this place to a crisp. Now, I think the fiery judgment here talked about is a literal one. And we'll talk about that in a second. But brimstone and fire also occur metaphorically in the scriptures. But remember that when Lot was choosing Sodom as his place to live, it was described as like the Garden of Yahweh. You go to it today, and you'll see a living picture of divine judgment. Again, it's just a total, barren, desolate. It looks like a moonscape. It's one of the most graphic examples in scripture of the judgment of God Total wipeout. Here's this beautiful, lush place, the place you want to go on vacation. Okay? It's a place on all the brochures, and now it's it's nothing. It's desolate. You don't want to be there. And throughout the Scripture, other writers talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. It's used over and over to, to refer to an example of judgment, to refer to not a good place at all. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 1, 9, and 10. Speaking to Israel now, remember, he's talking to Israel. Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Isn't that interesting? He calls the Israelites, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is gone, okay, at this time. He's calling Israel this. And he is saying that unless 
there was a very small remnant left, Israel would be totally wiped out. They'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Yahweh was graceful. He left them a remnant. Jeremiah says this, Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. This is the prophets now. They com- The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers. These are the prophets. The ones that are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. So that no one has turned back from his wickedness. They're not turning back because they're promoting it, the prophets are. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. So, there's very clearly an association here with these false prophets who speak lies and involved in adultery and strengthen the hands of evildoers. There's a connection with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's tying him in. Now, there are some who take the view that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. Alright? They take that view, they try to use the scriptures, and they say, the sin of this had nothing to do with homosexuality. Let me tell you a couple things. Um, when someone is really pushing something, you know, they're really behind it, they're gung-ho, first thing I want to know is, are you selling it? Because if you're selling it, you just tainted your view of it. Okay? Because, of course you think it's greater, you know, if you're pushing it. You know, if the person's got no connection to it, then I'm a little more open to hear what they have to say about the product. All right? But if you're, if you're taking scriptures and you're saying, well, it doesn't mean this because it doesn't talk about homosexuality, and you're a homosexual, then I kind of wonder where you come up with your interpretation from. You know, because, I mean, folks, we got, we're just prone to do that. If we have a certain view, a certain position, we want to make the Bible line up with what it is. Which is to me the, the height of foolishness. Because all we need to do to the scripture is just figure out what does it mean by what it says. And then line up under it. Because anything else is just ridiculous. Don't waste your time with the scripture if you're not curious and interested in only what it really truly says. But people want to say, no, this is not about homosexuality. One of those people is Justin Lee, who is the executive director of the Gay Christian Network. You heard me. Gay Christian Network. Alright? Referring to Genesis 19 as an argument against homosexuality, Justin says this. This passage is most often referred to by people who haven't read it. Well, we just read it, right? Of all the proof texts, he's talking about all the proof texts against homosexuality, This one is the least relevant and the least helpful. According to popular belief, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. Is that really popular belief or are we just lining up with what the scripture says? If you read the passage for yourself, you'll see that it isn't quite the way it happened. Sodom and Gomorrah were set to be destroyed by God for a number of reasons. Ezekiel tells us they were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and did not help the poor and needy, among other things. Alright, so Justin refers to the passage in Ezekiel, which, let's look at Ezekiel. Here's what he says in Ezekiel 16.49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance. Alright, they were proud. Abundant food and careless ease. In other words, they were like America, they were blessed. Okay, they had everything you need, but she didn't help the poor and needy. She had everything she needed, but she didn't help anybody. So Sodom's sin was not just homosexuality. That wasn't the only problem she had. 
And that's all Ezekiel's saying. He's not saying, no, it wasn't homosexuality at all. It was strictly arrogance. They use verse 49 in an attempt to prove that Sodom's sin wasn't homosexuality. But what, what is really curious to me is they failed to read the next verse. Because context is really important. He says, thus they were haughty. Yes, they were. The, the Hebrew word here is gava, And it means to be high, to be exalted, to, to speak. You know, it's pride. That's what he's talking about. But notice what else he says. And they committed abominations. This is the Hebrew word tueva, which in the Septuagint is anamama. It's in the plural here. And it indicates lawless actions. Yahweh says, therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Now, tueva, translated abominations, refers to something that is morally disgusting. Could homosexuality fit in that category? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask that, right? But it's the same exact word that's used in Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Alright, now, that word abomination is used for a lot of other things, but I want you to see that this city that he talks about, he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he said they committed abominations. Alright, we know it's something detestable, it very likely could be referring to homosexuality. Even if it's not, he is not saying in this text in Ezekiel that their sin was not homosexuality. He's just adding some more onto it, alright? Justin goes on to say that the sin of Sodom was gang rape. Okay? A threat of gang rape should be interpreted as an act of humiliating violence. A way of saying to a visitor, you are not welcome here, we're the big dogs. Well, folks, personally, if I want to get rid of a visitor, that's not what I do. Okay? I would ask him to leave, I would do something else, but you know, I mean, who does homosexual gang rape except homosexuals? Okay? There's a bunch of straight guys out there and they're saying, let's gang rape these guys just for fun. No, they don't do that. Okay? Wouldn't enter into the mind. Wouldn't happen. The sin of Sodom was not homosexuality but violence. That's what they're trying to say. It was just violence. Well, you know what the problem with that is? That's not what Jude teaches. Alright? So let's go back to our verse in Jude 1.7 and see what Jude says about this sin. He says, since they in the same way as these. Now, in the same way as these, homoios means like, resembling, similar. In most of the New Testament uses, it conveys the sense of to do likewise. All right? Now, who is the these? He says, in the same way as these. Does these refer to the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah? Or does it refer to the angels in the previous verse? See, if it goes back to the angels, then he is linking their sin to a sexual sin and that's Genesis 6. Well, grammar tells us that it is the angels due to gender and number agreement. Pronouns need to agree with gender, number, and case with their antecedent. The words these is from the Greek tatos, and is masculine plural, and angels is masculine plural, but cities is feminine, so it doesn't agree grammatically. So it is saying that these angels indulge in gross immorality, and so to the inhabitants of Sodom. Now, S. Lewis Johnson, who was professor of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he taught Greek, Hebrew, and systematic theology for 31 years, writes this. He says, "These, the these of verse 7 is a reference to the angels. 
We know that from the grammar of the original text. You might not catch it in the English text, but it's plain in the original Greek text. So if you go back and look at the text, like I said, the grammar, the number, the plurality, they have to agree, all right? So the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did essentially the same thing as the angels did. Now, we studied the angels. We know what they did. They left their normal place. They indulged in gross immorality. That's what the angels did. That's what the Sodomites and those of Gomorrah did. Gross immorality is from the Greek word ek pornuo. Ek means out from. Pornuo means they committed fornication or lewdness. Fornication is a really broad term. Pornia, all kinds of sexual sin. Covers homosexuality, covers anything. It indicates a heightened form. So ek pornuo is a heightened form of sexual immorality. So Jude is not saying that the sin of Sodom was inhospitality. He's not saying their sin was violence or gang rape. He says it was gross immorality, which I believe is homosexuality. Uh, That just seems to make sense. He also says that they went after strange flesh. Now the word went here in the Greek, aperkomai, which is from ape meaning separation, and erkomai, to come or go. It literally means to go away, to depart. Here it's used metaphorically. Vincent says the force of apo is away, turning away from purity, and going after strange flesh. Aperkomai is in an aorist participle indicating have gone. They've done this, it's past, they've gone away. It's followed by the word opiso, which means after a position behind or back. Now, in Mark 1.20, it's used of James and John leaving their father, going after Yeshua. In John 12.19, it's used in the phrase, the world has gone after him, referring to people going after Yeshua. The compound expression, went after, aperkomai opiso, indicates a departure from the established order of nature. A following a practice contrary to nature, deserting the established male-female relationship, they deliberately pursued a relationship with strange flesh. Now, talking about the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're going after strange flesh. What is interesting here is that the word strange flesh is sarkos heteros. And this is not referring to homosexuality. All right, for several reasons. First, homosexuality is not the pursuit of hetero or a different gender. It's homosexuality. Homo meaning same, okay? The same human flesh, not different flesh. Secondly, homosexual behavior involves humans, all right? You have sex with another human male. This here is referring to different flesh. And thirdly, the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts. It uses the Greek phrase paraphusian, which means contrary to nature. So Jude is telling us that those in Sodom and Gomorrah, which they indulge in gross immorality, which I believe was homosexuality, and they went after strange flesh, sexuality between angels and humans. So what Jude says here, it was seen that the men of Sodom knew that these visitors were angels. That's See, Jude seems to indicate that, because they're going after this strange flesh. In other words, this is... They're, the men of Sodom are homosexuals, alright? They're interested in homosexuality, this is a, but here's two angel men, so let's crank it up a notch in depravity and see how far we can go. Jude goes on to say that Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as examples. Now the words are exhibited here are from prokakmai, which is made of prose, which means in front of, 
and kemai, which means to lie outstretched. The word means to set out before one, to be placed before the eyes. Here in Jude, it refers to the destroyed cities are an example. In other words, Yahweh is using these cities. These cities are exhibited as an example of His judgment. This um, this word is used of meats that are laid out on a table ready for the guests. It's used of a corpse laid out for burial. Um, Thus the corruption and punishment of the cities of the plain were laid out in plain sight for everybody to see. Jew says the entire episode of Sodom and Gomorrah took place so the world would have a vivid picture of what Yahweh has planned for apostates. This destruction was in view of their apostasy. See, I believe Sodom and Gomorrah at one time knew, they understood, they knew Yahweh. This incident occurred 450 years after the flood, which at least one of Noah's sons, Shem, was still living at the time. And this was only 100 years after Noah's death. So people would have known about the message of righteousness and judgment that Noah preached. They would have been aware of Yahweh. That's why he's judging them, because they turned away from knowledge. The knowledge of Yahweh, they rejected that, so they suffered judgment. Now, as you study the Tanakh, you see that Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction are brought up over and over. Just over and over you use it. Uh, we see it in Deuteronomy, in Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. It's brought up in Matthew, Luke, Romans, Peter, Jude, Revelation. It keeps bringing it up as an illustration of judgment. It has stood down through the centuries as an illustration of the ultimate judgment of Yahweh. Somebody has written, The glare of Sodom and Gomorrah is flung down the whole length of Scripture. And it really is. You see that reminder continually. Now remember we read in Genesis 13.10 that Sodom is said to be like the garden of Yahweh. Beautiful, lush place. But it was judged by Yahweh for its sin. and became a bleak and a blasted area. The very character of the region is a timeless warning. And here, people, here's the thing. We can go there today and see it. All right? This is a, a picture. These little things are found all over in the region. You know, you, if you go to the region, you can see these. I mean, it's been blasted by erosion and stuff. But you can see, you know, buildings. You can see square things, you know, made there. You can see some ziggurats and, you know, some different things in the area of the city. But these little sulfuric balls are all over the place. It's like a, a little ball. You see them stuck on the side of walls. They're all over the ground. And if you take a knife and crack them open, you see this hunk of sulfur inside of them. So they've taken this sulfur and they said, well, let's take this and get it tested. They've had this tested at labs and it comes back 98% pure sulfur. It's got uh, measurable amounts of magnesium in them. Now, researchers were astonished when they found this because this, this just doesn't make sense because anywhere else you find sulfur... It's 40% pure. This is 98. This is the only place in the world that you can find this sulfur that's 98% pure. And like I said, it's everywhere. That whole region is scattered. And it just, you can see burn, you can see the, the total destruction that's there because Yahweh rained down on it and destroyed it. And like I said, you can go there today and look at it and see. You know, you don't, you don't get an idea of what it used to look like unless you believe the scriptures, but there's nothing there now. It's a picture of judgment on apostasy. Now notice how Jude 7 ends. It says, They're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The word undergoing here is from the word hoop echo. 
which is only used here in the New Testament. It literally means to hold under, and so metaphorically to undergo, to endure, or to experience something. The word punishment is from the Greek word decay, which speaks of punishment on the basis of what is rightly deserved. Now, the participle is present tense, indicating that the punishment continues to this day. Keep that in mind, all right? Now, notice that the punishment is eternal fire. So many people see this and they say, this is a reference to hell, all right? John MacArthur says that. MacArthur, in his commentary, said, Jude, we know where they were going. They were undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. This is hell. S.L. Johnson, who I quoted earlier, says this. Our text, as we have it, is the version that I have read to you, is a text that supports the idea of eternal punishment, conscious eternal punishment. He got all that out of that verse that we just read in Jude. He says, as the ultimate judgment for the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then commenting on annihilationism, he goes on to say, although the doctrine has been known for centuries, the Orthodox Christian Church has never espoused that in all the creedal statements. Boy, there's a strong argument. It's not in the creeds. <laughs> okay, well, we might as well give up then. You know, if it's not in the creeds, I mean, he says the different creedal statements of the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and others, is in not one single one of them is there any denial of the doctrine of eternal punishment. He goes on to say, we even have evangelicals who are suggesting that there really isn't such a thing as eternal torment. And that we have the option of believing in Jesus Christ or ultimate annihilation. And such outstanding men as Dr. Philip Hughes, John Stott, I'm sure most of you are familiar with John Stott, John Wynnum, and still others among evangelical, long years of evangelical preaching, acknowledging they have questions about eternal punishment. And when the words are examined that they have been uttering, they ultimately come down to this. I just cannot bring myself to believe that God would punish an individual with eternal punishment forever. Well, I don't really think that's their argument at all. It's not about what they believe. And people, it's not about what you believe, what I believe, what we believe God could do or God would do. It's not about any of that. It's all about what do the Scriptures teach? You know, we can look at it and say, oh, I don't think God would ever do that. Well, based on what? That issue is what does the Bible teach about eternal Conscious torment. There's a huge riff in the church about this. There's a riff in preterism about this. You know, it, it, are we going to go, people who don't know Christ, do they go and they burn forever somewhere? You know, they're, they're alive, they're in a fire, but they don't ever go anywhere. They just stay there and they burn forever and ever, and they're tormented forever and ever. Well, who or what is it that are exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire? This is a reference here to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, just as Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited as an example, undergoing the punishment of eternal. Now, are Sodom, are these two cities suffering eternal conscious torment? Are they burning? It's interesting to note that although individuals sin, obviously, in these judgments come against the cities. All right? The cities are the example of punishment of eternal fire. Now, eternal is from the Greek word ionios, which comes from ion. It means existing at all times, perpetual, pertaining to an unlimited duration of time. Now, the fire is said to be eternal because its destruction 
is eternal. It is permanent. It is never ending. What happened to those cities, as I said, was permanent. There's still, there's no fire going on there today. You can go over there and there's nothing burning. Unless you take one of those little sulfur balls and you light it, it will burn. Okay? But there's no fire going on over there, but the judgment is eternal. It's still a wasteland. Now, it's my opinion, I hope it's based on some research, (laughs) that the doctrine of hell comes more from Dante's Inferno than from the Bible. I think the Catholic Church pretty much invented this doctrine to keep people in fear and bondage. And so then they came up with purgatory, you know, to help out with the, with the deal, and they just invent all these things. Now, you may be thinking, well, doesn't the Bible talk about hell? Doesn't Yeshua talk about hell? Well, let's look at a text in Mark 9.43. Yeshua says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands and go into hell into unquenchable fire. And you see, there you go. He teaches about hell. Well, the word translated hell in this verse is the Greek word geana. This word never occurs in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Geana, translated hell, is found 12 times in the New American Standard Bible. All right? Um, when you read the word hell, I think all kinds of ideas come to your mind. And, and really, this is just a bad translation is what it is. All right? It's... The word hell should never be in our Bible, all right? Because what you think of of hell is not what the Bible is talking about at all, a Gehenna, all right? We think of this terrible abode, you know, that people are condemned, their soul, they're screaming forever. It's a place of eternal punishment for the wicked. Uh, We may think of a place of fire and brimstone where the damned undergo physical torment forever. It's doubtful that any of these ideas came into the mind of Yeshua's listeners. For them, Gaena was the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. Now, Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, said, Gaena, the name of a valley of the south and east of Jerusalem, which was so-called from the cities of that little children who were thrown into the fiery arms of Moloch, of an idol having the form of a bull, the Jews so abhorred the place after the horrible sacrifices had been abolished by King Josiah, that they cast into it not only all manner of refuge, but even the dead bodies of animals and the unburied criminals who had been executed. And since fires were always needed to consume the dead bodies, that the air might not become tainted by the putrefaction, it came to pass that the place was called Geena. Now, Geena began to be used as a place of human sacrifice, as he said, in the days of Ahaz. It is referred to in Jeremiah 7 as the Valley of Hinnom. In this passage, people are burning their own sons and daughters as human sacrifices. And that's how dedicated these people are to the worship of the fire god, Moloch. Jeremiah 7.30 says, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares Yahweh. They have set their detestable things in my house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they have built in the high places of Topheth, place of fire, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of the slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no other place, 
And the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. So Israel, Yahweh's people, began to worship Moloch, which involved human sacrifice. They would take their children and sacrifice them to this God. I've heard different versions of, some say, Moloch had hands outstretched and they would build fires under the brass hands until they would glow hot and then they'd throw their children into the hands. However they did it, it's just plain sick, okay? These are supposed to be Yahweh's children. Well, later in Israel's history, the godly king Josiah came to the throne in Jerusalem. He wanted to do away with the system of human sacrifice that had been practiced in the Valley of Hinnom. So 2 Kings 23.10 says, He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hammon, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire for Moloch. He wanted to do away with this practice. So he defiled the place by making it a garbage dump for Jerusalem. All the trash, all the refuse, all the dung from the city was dumped out there for centuries until the time of Christ. And characteristic of this place were fires that were kept burning all the time, day and night, because this garbage is constantly trying to burn up this garbage. The fact is referred to by Christ in the Gospels as the place where the fires are not quenched and the worms don't die out. That means the fires burn constantly. The Valley of Hinnom was a place that had become identified in the people's minds as a filthy, accursed place where waste was thrown. It was a dump. And Christ used this to describe a place of suffering and torment. That's the background of Gehenna. Now, notice what Yeshua says in Mark 9.43. He says... If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your hand. So go into hell into unquenchable fire. The, the word unquenchable here is from the Greek asbestos. The word's only used three times in the New American Standard. Once here, once in Matthew 3.12 and in Luke 3.17, where John the Baptist said he would baptize with unquenchable fire. Unquenchable fire is unstoppable fire. It's fiery destruction brought about by God. God promised this national destruction on Judah. Let's go back to Ezekiel 20. And say to the forests of Negev, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I'm about to kindle a fire in you. It shall consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. And all flesh will see that I, Yahweh, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Now, Babylon fulfilled these words in the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. The fire wasn't quenched. The destruction was unstoppable. But Jerusalem didn't burn unendingly from 586 on. It was destroyed and it was a permanent destruction. So when Yahweh spoke, speaks of unquenchable fire, He used language that the Jewish listeners would associate with national judgments that God brought on the nation. In fact, unlike us, they had never heard such language used in any other way. See, every time we see fire and judgment, we think of hell, because we've been, it's been ingrained in us. They didn't think of that. They think of national judgments against our city. Notice what Yeshua said about hell. He said, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where, what, what is this language referring to? Well, where would you find out? Where do you go to find out what he's saying here? Well, thanks to the New American Standard, you can see it's all in caps, which means he's quoting somewhere from the Tanakh. He's quoting from Isaiah 66, 24. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men they have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. 
This verse is talking about God's destruction on Jerusalem in the generation when Yeshua was crucified. When Yeshua spoke about the worms not dying, the fire not being quenched, the disciples would be familiar again with the idea of national judgment. It's talking about the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem because of her sin. So Gana was a place that had become identified in people's minds as a filthy, accursed place where useless and evil things were destroyed. It's not talking about eternal damnation. It was a defiled place. It became the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Fires smoldered there continually. That's where you throw something away. I think we understand the idea. If you throw something in a fire, it burns up and it's gone. That's the whole idea. I think that's the picture of Gehenna. They're thrown in the fire, they're consumed, and they're gone. It was filled with ugly, repulsive worms, with just horrible stuff. That's why they kept the fires going to try to keep the stench down. And it really becomes a symbol of judgment. Now, I believe that man was created mortal. All right? Subject to death. I believe whether Adam sinned or not, I think man was created mortal. Man was born to die. But here's the thing. It seems that most Christians believe that all men were created immortal. Because they believe everybody will live forever somewhere. Right? They're all immortal. They go on. You know, you, if you believe in hell, then you get to go to hell immortal. You're immortal. You're there forever. If you get to go to heaven, you're there and you're there immortal forever. But do the Scriptures teach this? Well, look at uh, 2 Timothy 1.10. But now has been revealed by the appearance of our Savior, Christ Yeshua, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Now, did Yeshua abolish death for everybody? Is this teaching universalism? Everybody's saved? No. He abolished death and He brought immortality for believers. Only believers have eternal life. It's a gift that we get for trusting in Christ. So if we get eternal life, what do unbelievers get? What happens to those who don't trust Christ? Well, I think the Bible teaches that they perish. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not go to hell and burn eternally forever and ever. Could He have said that? Absolutely. Why didn't He? There's a contrast here between perishing and eternal life. In other words, those they just go. They're gone. They perish. But believers, they get eternal life. I don't see Jude 7 as talking about hell at all. I don't see how, even if, you know, if the Bible teaches it elsewhere, it doesn't teach it in Jude 7. It's talking about these cities and they're undergoing an eternal judgment. But I don't think it teaches it anywhere, to tell you the truth. As I said, um, I really think it is a doctrine that has been forced upon us to keep people in subjection, to keep people in bondage. I see the unbeliever as dying and they're gone. All right, this, this idea of the immortality of the soul is a Greek idea. Greeks believe, they come along, Plato and those guys talk, everybody lives forever somewhere. All right, that's not a Hebrew idea. Well, the parallel text to Jude 7 is our text in 2 Peter 2 6. It says, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, that's what they were condemned, to be destroyed, by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives. So Sodom and Gomorrah, they're saying, they're an example. They're a warning. 
It's a warning to anyone who's on the edge of turning away from Christ. It's a reminder of how important it is for believers to fight for the faith, to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He destroyed those Israelites that came out of Egypt. He destroyed the angels who were once around His throne. He destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were exposed to Him in His revelation but perverted themselves. They all serve as pictures of judgment against apostasy. Jude gives us three examples of judgment. Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what I want to do is next week, I'm going to teach on homosexuality and the Bible. If you got some questions or some input on this topic that you want to give me, then text your questions or comments to this number, 424-6453. That's the church number. You can text me at that number. I'll be glad to use or try to incorporate whatever you, you know, question you give or any input you give to put into this because this is just, I wanted to deal with it today, but as you see, I ran out of time as it was. There's too much time in that verse. So next week, we're just going to come back and talk about what does the Bible say about homosexuality? I mean, do these scriptures really talk about this or have we somehow perverted them to make them say what we want them to say or are the homosexuals trying to make them say what they want them to say? So we just want to take a a look at the Bible. I want to give you, we're going to look at several scriptures. I also want to give you some, just some illustrations, I think, that prove that homosexuality is a deviant, unnatural lifestyle. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I thank you for, Lord, the clarity of your word against this judgment, Lord, against apostasy, against turning away. Lord, I pray for our nation. Our nation seems to be on that road, Lord, of apostasy. It's turning away. It's calling evil good and good evil. We're a mess, Lord, and I know we're in that condition because we're walking away from you. Lord, I pray for our country. I pray for our church, Lord, that the church would wake up, that your people would wake up and take a stand on the Word of God, not to be swayed by public opinion or what's going on around them, but to stand fast on the truth of Scriptures, Lord, no matter who's with them. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Give us the courage we need, Lord, to be standing on the Word lovingly, confronting those who do not believe the truth. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.